All right, well, welcome. We are in part two of our series called It Just Happened. And uh, I'm excited for this series. It's been sun fun so far. So if you weren't with us last week, let me kind of just take a minute or two to kind of catch you up. Last week, we talked about a man in the gospel who was born blind, and he was blind from birth. And then we talked about a five-year-old boy, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was a young boy that was raised in the king's palace. Someday he would become king, and everybody was raising this boy as royalty. His grandfather was King Saul. His father was Jonathan. And one day his grandfather and father got killed in war. And so the family heard through rumor that David, who would be the next king, was on the way to the palace and he was going to kill everybody from Saul's family. So Saul's entire family is like, we got to get out of here. We got to go on the run. So they fled from their palace. And on the way, Mephibosheth got dropped on the front porch. A little four or five-year-old boy gets dropped and breaks both of his legs and he can't walk the rest of his life. And the thing is, David was never planning on coming to kill the family. All rumors, all lies. His family was fleeing because of misinformation. But in the process, this little boy broke his legs, could never walk the rest of his life, and ended up living in a city called Lodabar, which is a place where nothing grows, nothing prospers, everything withers, and everything dies. And we look at stories like this and we say, why did that happen? Why was this little boy born blind? Why did this little boy get dropped and can never walk again? Well, the story is that that little boy, did, that, that, the man who was blind, did get healed. And Mephibosheth was healed as well, but he never regained use of his legs. And that makes us wonder, God, if you're going to heal somebody, why don't you give them the whole deal? How can Mephibosheth couldn't walk again? And it's kind of stories like that make us wonder, and sometimes it's because our perspective is off. See, when King David came into Mephibosheth's life, King David was like a representation of Christ, like a, a, a figure of Christ. And what King David did is he came into Mephibosheth's life and he restored the relationship that was lost. And he restored Mephibosheth's inheritance. And that's reason to celebrate. There's nothing better than having your relationship restored with God and having the inheritance that was lost be restored. And that's the beauty of the story of Mephibosheth and to look at the blind man, to see what God restored in their life. But see, sometimes we come in those difficult situations in our life and we can get so focused on why did it happen? Why did it happen? That we never move forward. We never move forward and see what God wants to do out of the situation. And so part of the series, I'm calling it, it just happened because sometimes we just have to look at things that happen in our life that we can't explain and just say, you know what, it just, it just happened. I don't need to be able to explain everything of why it happened. Because what I need to do at a time like this is just look for Jesus in the situation. Where is Jesus in the midst of a situation that happens that I really don't like. And so in this series, we want to focus on that because the truth is, if we find Jesus in any situation in our life, suddenly the reason why doesn't seem to matter as much. Because if we find Jesus, that's ultimately what we're all looking for. So I want to talk today more about finding Jesus in situations that maybe you don't expect to find him in. Today I want to talk about Jacob. Some of you know the story of Jacob. He was uh, 
in the book of Genesis, we hear about Jacob. He was the grandson to Abraham, and he was the son of Isaac. And Jacob was one of those guys that was, he was actually one of the first recorded twins in the Bible. He was the younger of the twins. He had an older brother, Esau. We talked about Jacob and Esau a few weeks ago in church, and basically Jacob was, was born. He was the younger of the twins, and he was born with a great future, where God had a great plan for his life, such a great plan that before he was born, the Lord spoke to Jacob's mother and said, this is what I want to do in your son's life. This child was born with a great inheritance and a great purpose and a great plan for his life. But unfortunately, during life, Jacob became known as a deceiver, as a manipulator, as a liar, as a guy with a lot of control problems. He wanted to control every situation. So here, on one hand, God has this great future planned for Jacob, but Jacob's over here being the big deceiver and the liar, and what is God going to do about it? Because certainly God can't bless this guy with all the future he has for him if Jacob's just going to go around being a deceiver or being a manipulator. So what is God going to do? So God does what he does with every situation of sin in the Bible. He did it from the time of Adam and Eve. He looked for the person sinning, and then he finds them, and then he shows them his kindness. And God showed his kindness to Jacob in a way that none of us would ever expect him to do. See, there's times in our life when God moves in a powerful way that you have to say the same thing. I can't explain that. That just happened too. And you sit back, you're like, wow. God did something that I would never expect or never imagined. So Jacob is known as a deceiver, and what he does is he deceives his own brother out of his brother's very own inheritance. And how does Jacob do it? He does it by lying, by controlling, by manipulating. Jacob lies to his brother, and he lies to his father. Well, Jacob's older brother finally had enough of it, and he said to Jacob, I'm going to kill you. So at that point, Jacob got a little wise and said, then I better get out of town. So Jacob flees, and he's fleeing from his home, fleeing from his family, and on his way, he comes to a city called Bethel. And he gets to the city, and he needs to spend the night there. He needs to sleep, and the story tells us that he has nothing for a pillow. So he uses a rock for a pillow. See, the scriptures would tell us that at this point, Jacob didn't have anything comfortable with him. I mean, normally you'd think if you're running to hide, you won't say, I'm going to use a rock for a pillow. And maybe I got an extra shirt along or an extra pair of shoes along or something to bring you extra comfort. But Jacob has none of that, so he has to use a pillow for a rock. And I just wonder if maybe we just found Jesus. Because see, all through Scripture, all through the Old Testament, the rock is a metaphor for Jesus. And suddenly, Jacob has nothing of comfort to comfort him, so he uses a rock for a pillow. And perhaps we're seeing Jesus enter in the story, but you know, you wouldn't see Jesus in that story if Jacob had something else to give him comfort. All Jacob's comforts are removed, so he suddenly, we notice the rock in the story. And so that night, Jake, the Lord comes and he shows himself to Jacob in a powerful way. See, at that point, Jacob was fearful that his brother was going to still kill him. He's probably wondering, what is my life going to be like? I just burned the bridge with my family. My brother wants to kill me. My father's not too happy with me. 
And he's probably wondering, is my life over? Is there any future that I have? So Jacob goes to bed that night with his head on a rock thinking, I don't, know, I don't even know if I have a future anymore. So he goes to bed that night. Then in Genesis 28, we read that the Lord came to him and it says, and behold, the Lord stood above it and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. The Lord comes to Jacob at a place where Jacob is wondering, is my life over? And God gives him this incredible promise. Not the time you'd really expect God to promise he would do something. But here God comes into Jacob's circumstance probably at the most vulnerable time of his life. And God gives to Jacob the same promise that he gave to his grandfather, plus God added a little bit more to this promise. God said to him, you are going to, I'm going to promise, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you multiple descendants. From your family line, the Messiah will come. And I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you on this entire journey. And I'm going to take you back to the land that you're from. And I will accomplish all these things. And that's such a promise that God gives to every one of us is that he wants to do things in our life of restoration and of wholeness. And he says he's going to be with us the entire time and it's going to be accomplished. And that's a good dream. See, there's times in our life we wonder why do bad things happen to good people. This dream, you kind of wonder why do good things happen to bad people. Jacob really wasn't at a platform that God would really come in and bless him. He had just lied to his entire family. But yet God in his goodness and his kindness comes in and says, I'm going to show you my kindness. This is what I want to do in your life. See, God has this habit a blessing people in their weakness. It's a habit of blessing people at their most vulnerable time. And I absolutely love Jacob's response. Jacob's response, and he says, Jacob wakes up in the morning, he says, then, then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob had no idea that God was with him in this darkest point of his eye darkest point of his life but Jacob finally comes to realize God has been with me the entire time and I did not even know it probably instead of calling this series it just happened I probably should rename it God is in this situation because that's what we see in Jacob that God is involved in every single situation and that sometimes when our pillow is removed, we're able to see God and hear him speak to us. I just love that response of Jacob. Here, I think this is the darkest point of my life. And God's right there in the middle, ready to speak. Here, Jacob thinks there's probably nothing good can come out of this. And God says, let me speak. 
So 20 years go by. Jacob gets off. He, he, he continues on his journey, moves in with some family members, has this whole big fiasco trying to find a wife. That's a whole other story, a whole other message. That whole 20 years, we're going to just jump over that a little bit. Because if I started going into that, we'd be here for a while. So Jacob, he, uh, you know, he gets wife, wife, messed up again, got two wives, got a lot of kids. But he's growing, he's maturing, he's served his father-in-law very well. You can see Jacob the manipulator is kind of, we're, we're kind of seeing him overcome that, the way he's serving uh, his father-in-law. But see, part of God's plan for Jacob is to bring him back to the land that he was from. This was part of the step for Jacob's recovery is that he had to go back to his family and face them. And this is usually a very difficult step in our life to go back to situations that we really messed up in. But in order for Jacob to move forward in God's plans for his life, he is going to have to go back and he is going to face his brother and, and face our mistakes. And for Jacob, he had to go back and he had to face his older brother. Jacob had to go back and uh, try to make amends with his brother over what he did to him. So 20 years have gone by, and so Jacob, well, sometimes we get in a tough situation. We get in a situation that's difficult, and the first thing we do is we go back to what we know is familiar, and for Jacob, it was lying and deceiving. So instead of Jacob trying to go back to his brother and do a nice apology, he decides, well, maybe if I send a bunch of servants and a bunch of kids and a bunch of women with a bunch of, bunch of, what do you, bunch of, stuff, a bunch of gifts, send them off to my brother, and maybe my brother would be like, wow, look, you lied to me all these years, but look, you gave me presents, so I'm going to forget about it. So that's what Jacob's kind of hoping, that he can deceive his brother and just send a bunch of gifts ahead of him, and his brother will be like, wow, that's really nice. But what does Jacob do? He stays back. Jacob doesn't go along. See, Jacob's brother wasn't looking for a sacrifice from Jacob. He was looking for repentance. But Jacob kind of gets used to his old ways. And so then we read, and let me read the narrative in Math, or Genesis 32, verse 22. It says, that same night he arose, talking about Jacob, and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and they crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. So Jacob sends everything he has across the river, and once again, he is left alone without any one of his possessions. And then it says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So the question is, who is he wrestling with? This is kind of a, a, one of those verses in the Bible. You kind of need a little commentary sometime to help you. Was this a man? Was it a physical man? No, it was some kind of spiritual being. Some people say it was he wrestled with God. Some people say he wrestled with Jesus. Some people say it was an angel. But the whole point it's trying to make is he's wrestling over who is control, who is in control. So that's what the wrestling match is about. And then it says, And when this man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be 
called Jacob, but Israel, for you have strived with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So Jacob is at this place. He's at the river. He's, Jacob's at a place. He's all alone. Sends all his possessions across the river. So once again, he is left alone. And so we have this angelic visitor come visit him. And we know they're wrestling about who's going to be in control. Is God going to be in control? Or is Jacob going to continue to be in control? Because God knows he can't move on with Jacob if Jacob is going to continue to manipulate and deceive. So they're wrestling about who is going to be in control. And we know that because at one point that angel said to him, you know, what is your name? See, the last time that somebody asked Jacob what his name was, he lied. And he said his name was Esau. The last time somebody asked Jacob his name, he was deceiving. And he pretended to be someone who he wasn't. But this time, when the angel says to Jacob, says, what is your name? Jacob is finally honest. And Jacob admits, I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. I'm a manipulator. And then at that point, the Lord blesses him. When Jacob comes to the end of himself and admits who he is and who he's pretending to be and who he's deceiving and finally admits that, then God comes in and says, okay, now I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you a new name. And see, when God gives Jacob a new name, he's given him a new identity. And then it continues on and it says he was delivered. So Jacob gets a new name. He gets a new identity. Text says he was delivered and we're excited. Yep, Jacob, you are finally getting on with your life. Maybe you finally have learned from your time alone with God to stop being a deceiver, stop being a manipulator. So we're a little cheering for Jacob. And then we read Genesis verse 32, verse 31, and it says, The sun arose upon Jacob as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Like, wait a minute. Jacob just got delivered, as the text says. He got his identity restored, and he is limping. And we often wonder, why is he limping? Why didn't God restore everything? Why does Jacob have to walk away from this situation with a limp? So when we look at Jacob's life, we recognize that what Jacob received from God was a new identity and a blessing And that's the best thing possible for Jacob to receive. See, sometimes we look to God and say, I just want that limp removed. And we ignore everything else that he's done in our life. See, God doesn't end the encounter with Jacob by saying, okay, you you um, you have a new identity. But he ends the encounter by saying to him, I am always with you. See, that's the exclamation of this point of the story is that God said to Jacob, it doesn't matter, you got a little limp right now because I am always going to be with you. See, God doesn't always come in and change every single situation in our life. 
Sometimes he's not going to change the job, change the career, change the uh, person that's annoying you. But God always says he will come in and be with you and change your identity. And that's what God did for Jacob. See, last week I called my message dropped but not forgotten. I think this week I could call my message limping but not forgotten. See, Jacob walked away from his encounter with God with a limp. And see, the truth is, probably every single person here has some kind of limp in your life. You've had an encounter with God. You've had a meeting with God. God's done restoration in your life. He's changed your identity, but there's still a limp. And we read passages like 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is he a new... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we wondered, Lord, if I am this new creation and you restored everything, how come I have a limp? Or Mephibosheth wondering, you restored everything, I still can't walk. And sometimes we get frustrated with that in our life and we wonder, why did that happen? See, when I'm talking about limping, I'm not talking about active sin in your life, but sometimes we have a limp in our life that we have a propensity towards a sin or a vulnerability towards a sin, or sometimes we have this in us that sometimes we struggle with the idea of maybe wanting to sin in an area, and we sometimes don't feel like we have much self-control in that area. See, sometimes that is a limp in our life. And I wonder, God, why didn't you take it away? Why haven't you completely taken away my desire for something that I really shouldn't have a desire for? Why haven't you 100% set me free? Why am I limping? See, sometimes we have a limp because we need to be dependent on somebody else to help us. See, for Mephibosheth, he was restored, but yet someone still had to carry him. Sometimes you're like, I don't want that part of it. I want to walk on my own. I don't want to have to rely on anybody. I don't want anybody to carry me. It's a little embarrassing. I want to do it on my own. So, so the Apostle Paul understands this. In Romans 7, Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not... You know, i got to practice reading out loud. See, I read these quietly in my head, and it makes sense, and I stand up here, and I feel like I'm reading Dr. Seuss. All right. <laughs> if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, but that is not good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. See, the Apostle Paul is saying, I have a problem with limping. I still have some stuff inside of me that um, makes me limp. See, Paul knew that sometimes it might be good for him to have it, the limp. 
We read in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul says, So to keep from, being, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. See, Paul said, I understand I have a thorn in my flesh. And he's not talking about a literal thorn in his flesh. But what he's talking about is that he had some continual problem in his life. See, a lot of scholars would think maybe, maybe it was a temptation that he had this reoccurring temptation to do a sin. Or maybe he had a health problem. Maybe he had eye problems. Maybe he had, some people thought maybe he had a, a speech problem. Some people even think maybe what he's referring to is that he had a person that constantly harassed him. No one's exactly for sure what Paul's thorn in his flesh was, and I think the reason we keep it open is because the Bible's trying to speak to us that it can be a number of things that can be a thorn in our flesh that you think, man, I wish this was gone. It seems like I would just be a better person if this was gone. If that limp was gone, I would be such a better person. And yet God leaves it, and we wonder, why does he leave it? And it doesn't make much sense. But Paul helps us to see that sometimes that weakness is good for us to keep. Now, the problem that we have sometime in our country is that our limp or our vulnerability, some people take that on and say, well, that's my identity. Well, if I'm going to struggle in that area, I might as well just go all the way and participate in the sin. Uh-uh, that's not the point. Got to read what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 again, Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness or my limp, so that when the power of Christ may rest on me. See, Paul understood clearly that when he had this limp, if he surrendered it over to Jesus, it became his source of strength, that it became his source of power because that limp in his life made him dependent on God. See, God didn't give it to him to be miserable. But God gave him that challenge in his life for him to be dependent on God. See, see, your weakness is not your limp, but it is designed to be power in your life. Sometimes the struggle in our life is what makes us strong because it makes us dependent on Christ. And that's what Paul wants us to see here is that in any weakness in our life will make us strong. <clears throat> because it's going to force us to rely on other people. See, what we do sometimes with people is we try to make them hide their limp. We kind of try to tell people sometimes, you can't be that vulnerable. You can't share with me too much. So sometimes we teach people to lie. Sometimes we do that in the church. We te teach people to lie. Because if they get real vulnerable with you and share things, people might say, Wow. We have a wrong attitude with them. Instead of showing them love and compassion and kindness and mercy, we show them judgment. And that's not what we ever want to do as a church. But we want to be a church that we walk together and carry each other through a weakness or a limp to encourage each other and not to make people feel like they have to walk alone. 
See, the whole point of Christian life and the point of going to church is that we live in community together, that we live in relationship where we love and encourage each other and the people in our church that maybe have a limp that we support them, encourage them, or maybe the Mephibosheths in our congregation that can't walk, we would carry them. See, that's what God has called us to do, that we would be a body that would support people. See, in Romans 8, verse 14, Paul says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. See, it's this picture that Paul is giving us of God who is the faithful God that will lead his children. You see the picture of Jesus, the good shepherd, leading his children. See, another synonym for the word led is the word carried. That God wants us to understand that he is the God that will carry you. Not just lead you, but he will carry you. But how does a person become carried? You have to be willing to let somebody else carry you. And that can be a bit of a struggle at times. To relinquish control like Jacob had did and say, I need somebody to carry me. See, Jesus wants to come into our life to carry us to give us a new identity to remove the guilt and the shame and condemnation that any of us experience. So I love Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, we're introduced to uh, another man who was, has a withered hand. We're not exactly sure why this guy has a withered hand, and we're not sure what caused it, and we're not sure... The reason for his hand, but um, <clears throat> so Jesus is out with his twelve disciples one day, and they come across this man with a withered hand, and Jesus with, is with his twelve disciples, and his uh, and also the Pharisees are there. Pharisees are watching Jesus. You know, they're just always there to criticize. They're always there to pick on Jesus. Everything he does, they want to run a commentary on what he's doing wrong the whole time. So Jesus is there with his disciples, and they come in contact with a man who has a withered hand. And see, all through the Bible, the, uh, a hand is, represents a source of authority. It represents power. It represents protection. But it also represents control. So this man has a withered hand. And we know in that culture, back in that day, if a person had a deformity, it was something to be incredibly ashamed, to be incredibly ashamed of to be embarrassed of. And in that culture, a person who had a limp hand like this man, a withered hand, he would have been treated like a very marginalized person, like there's something really bad with you. That your hand, what is affecting your hand is just a condition of what's going on inside of you. So people would have ran from this man. They would not have had relationship with this man. They would not have been in community with this man. This man would have been left outside a community because there was something wrong with him. And in the, in the Torah, the Old Testament Torah, this man could never become clean from his withered hand. He would have to go to the temple every single day and make sacrifices for the condition of his hand. So this man lived excluded from everybody, everybody talking about him, everybody, everybody having a, a feelings about this guy that he was a less than person. So this guy grew up very marginalized, very insecure, Left out. So probably what this guy did is he probably tried to cover his hand. Because maybe if nobody saw my hand, they would never pick on me. 
or they would never think I was sinful or evil inside. So my guess is that guy probably wore long sleeves a lot, probably tried to cover up his hand. And most commentaries would say his withered hand, it probably didn't really work. He probably had no use of it, so it probably just dangled there. So he probably just kind of put it in his pocket, tried to kind of look like I'm fitting in, try to fit in with everybody else. So this man with his hand would cover it up and walk with his hand in his pocket so maybe nobody else would know until the one day he comes up and he meets this man, Jesus. And he meets Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus said to this man is he added value to this man's life. See, everybody else was watching Jesus thinking, what are you doing with that man with a withered hand? Why would you go talk to that guy with his hand in his pocket? Why would you talk to him? And the first thing Jesus said is, starts talking about the value of this man. And I forgot to write down that scripture, but Jesus says, uh, he asks a question about the value of this man. He's implying to the Pharisees and disciples that this man has value. And everybody else is watching, thinking this man has no value because of his hand. And so Jesus says something profound to this man. He says to the man, he says, stretch out your hand. That's a pretty big ask for a man that's been hiding his hand for who knows how long. This is a pretty big ask to say to a man who has been trying to hide this hand for who knows how long. Jesus comes to him and says, stretch out your hand? Wow. See, it's not just alone with Jesus that this man is just alone with Jesus in a private room and Jesus says, stretch out your hand. But now we have the Pharisees are watching. See, the Pharisees represent the critical person in your life. They represent the person that's constantly saying, that's the way you are. You're a bad person. The Pharisees is that voice in your head that says, well, no wonder why you ended up this way. You're just a terrible, rotten person. You deserve it. You deserve to be this way. The Pharisees are the one that say, there's nothing that can happen good with your hand. There's nothing Jesus can do. You better just make sacrifices. See, the Pharisee spirit just says, you better figure out how to do it on your own because you are a rotten person. Says, says man has the Pharisees in his other hand, head, telling him the lies. So Pharisees do, they lie. And then we have Jesus' disciples on the other side. The good guys. The good guys that are going to represent community for this man. The good guys are going to be representative of the church for this man. So it's in that context that Jesus says to this man, reach out your hand to me. See, Jesus told him in the midst of community, he didn't do it in isolation. So there this man is, what is he going to do? Is he going to take his hand out of his pocket or not? Is he going to show Jesus, his withered hand. Is he going to show Jesus? He was hurt. His embarrassment. Is he going to show that to Jesus? Or is he going to keep his hand in his pocket the rest of his life? And in Matthew 12, verse 13, it says, So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored. 
just as sound as the other. The man was able to reach out his hand to Jesus, and immediately when he did that, his hand was healed. See, suddenly this man went from thinking, I have to go to the temple every day and I have to make a sacrifice for who I am. Every day I got to try to figure out to take care of my own challenges. Every day I have to go to the temple and I got to pay for this thing wrong with me until the day he meets Jesus and Jesus gives him the gift of grace and says, no, you just give it to me. And immediately when he gave his hand to Jesus, all the guilt and all the shame and all the confusion was immediately healed. Because when Jesus comes into our life and reveals himself to us and we reach out our hand as a moment of trust, as a sign of surrendering, the hand represents control of giving control back over to Jesus. He comes in and gives us the new identity. See, the beauty of the story with the man with outstretched hand isn't that he got his hand healed, but that he surrendered his control over to Jesus. And that he surrendered his hurt and his pain and his discomfort over to Jesus. That's the beauty of the story. Is that Jesus comes in and takes the brokenness away and brings healing and restoration. So let's pray as we enter into our final song. Father, we come before you right now. And Father, you are a good and a faithful God. And we thank you, Father, that you love us so much and that you care for us so much. The Lord, a lot of us in this room have a hand in our pocket. And some of us have a hand in both pockets. And we don't want anybody to see what is going on inside of us because we have been taught that we have to manage this uh, darkness that's going inside of us, and that's our responsibility. Lord, sometimes we hear the word of the Pharisee just saying, oh, you're a bad person. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are always here to say, I want to show you my kindness. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the comfort we can take that you are here saying, I want to show you my kindness. Would you stretch out your hand and give it to me? Father, we know that man did not have the physical ability to stretch out his hand. That hand didn't work. The muscles didn't work to lift it up, so there was nothing that man could do. But Lord, that's when your grace comes in. That's when your gift of grace comes in and says, I will do it for you. And so, Father, we come before you, Lord, to worship you in this last song. And, Lord, we, we lift up our hands to you. And, Lord, we give you control. We give you control, Lord, over the situations in our life. And, Lord, sometimes we can lift our, hand, lift our hands to you, but we close our fist a little bit because this is hard. But, Lord, we're just going to surrender to you, Lord, and we just pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage this week to give to you everything that we need to give to you so we can just move on with the covenant plans that you have for our life. Lord, we don't want to be like Jacob, that we have to keep spending our night with a head on the pillow, our head on a, living in a barren place. But, Lord, we want to move in the plans that you have for us. So, Lord, would you give us strength, Lord, 
to uh, be able to release to you even during as we sing right now, Lord, anything that would hold us back. Father, we thank you that you healed that man in the context of community. Lord, help us to be a community that would reach out to people that are limping or reach out to people that can't walk and that we would carry them for you. Lord, we love you so much and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.